We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. And with me today are two guests who I've known for quite some time. And uh, I anticipated one day that they would be here. And it would it brings me great pleasure to introduce uh, Sean Russell and Darren Harvey. And the both of you I've known through viral media for the last, I think, four four years, approximately around four or five years. And um, I am very proud of the both of you for the changes that you've gone through and the uh, the evolution of you learning about so many various subjects. Uh, you're not a one-trick pony, and you cover so many subjects. And um, and I'm very proud of the both of you of the work you've done and the, uh, the uh, podcast that you're making, which is called Beyond Ground Zero, which we'll talk about in a minute. And, um, you know, thank you both for very, for very much for coming on. Well, thank you for the you, kind Adam. words, Adam. Thank yeah. you for having thank me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've, I wondered that, um, you know, we all have come from that background, you know, it, whether it was uh, for the long term, for the short term, and used to have come from, uh, the background that I've come from and most 9-11 researchers, and that is uh, we came from a fringe conspiracy mindset. And I, what I want for everybody to learn and know about the both of you is that much like with everybody else, including myself and, you know, co our friend, co-researcher, you know, Nelson from DJ Thermodetonator and others that we know, that we once believed in various things and what's unfortunate and um i really uh, something that really grinds my gears is that when we first started uh the first thing that we came across on viral media were you know very mis well uh, I, I guess well-intentioned but misinformed films like loose change for example or davon cleese in plain sight but out of that we became we we changed our mindset and we played devil's advocate with the evidence that we had. So, Sean, I, I want to start with you. Sure. Um, when when did you begin this journey of studying the events of September 11, 2001? <clears throat> well, it's a long time ago now. Um, I've been interested in 9-11 since probably Michael Moore's documentary mm. in the early 2000s. Was it 2004, I think? Um, Fahrenheit 9-11 was, uh, it was a big media release. 
I think it won an award. It was, it was very popular and made the rounds. <clears throat> and uh, at the time, I didn't think very much at all really about 9-11, which I have a short story that I can get into regarding that. But it was a, a major media piece regarding 9-11 and maybe some things about 9-11 that are uh, causing the public to start to look at things in a new way. And it was shortly after that, might have been 2005, 2006, there was another pretty popular um, documentary that made the rounds in the public media sphere, uh, which was Zeitgeist. Mm. And Zeitgeist didn't deal specifically with 9-11, but it had a chapter on 9-11. And it dealt with, uh, I guess, sort of historical revisionism, for, for lack of a better descriptor. And 9-11 was one of the things that it got into. And so by that time, I watched that and I, I was very moved by it. It definitely uh, reinforced the sorts of, I guess, just thoughts and questions, unanswered questions that I had, and mostly just thoughts about 9-11. And it was, it was at that point that I started looking a little bit more for more things about 9-11 and specifically a conspiracy mm. about 9-11. And so that's, that's where conspiracy theorism, <clears throat> conspiracy theory w would have come into play for me in the uh, early to mid 2000s. Um, by some luck, by, by some random chance, it was soon after that that I came across some more intriguing uh, 9-11 media on, I believe, YouTube, because it was in the early days of YouTube. And there was, uh, it was maybe easier to find some of the uh, uh, conspiracy theory work on 9-11. So probably sometime around the years 2009, 2010, 11, somewhere in there, I happened across a 9-11 uh, conspiracy documentary called War by Deception. Uh. And it's uh, it's one of the older 9-11 documentaries, but it's one of the better of the uh, of the original slew of 9-11 documentaries, which there's a handful of them. Mm -hmm. But I didn't see the others. I wasn't aware of In Plain Sight. I wasn't aware of Loose Change. There, there was a lot of things that were definitely more popular that I missed just by chance. And it was, uh, it was that film more by deception that really caught my attention, like really caught my attention. Mm -hmm. And it made me even more interested in asking new questions, different questions and having new thoughts, different thoughts and trying to find more information about those things. And that same film producer Ryan Dawson, uh, he created sort of a sequel to that film mm. a couple of years later. Might have been 2016, something like that. And he made uh, Empire Unmasked. And it's kind of a sequel to War by Deception or almost an expanded version of it, which both films are very long films. Right. And so at the end of War by Deception, 
there's a sort of call to the carpet to the audience, to the viewer, to accept and embrace a obligation, a um, a responsibility as 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 the public to become more informed, to become more capable, and to maybe make some action regarding a 9-11 investigation. And at the time, everybody was talking about change, right. real change. And so that's what led me to reaching out through social media, which I did not really use at the time. So I started using the, uh, Facebook and started uh, basically internet outreach, trying to uh, find other people who were talking about these matters, maybe learn from them or have discourse with them and learn myself. Um, it was after watching those documentaries that then I opened all the doors even the ones that I thought probably were dead ends. And I wanted to see it all. I wanted to see all the information that everybody would talk about. There was, at that time, in the uh, sort of middle life of YouTube, still some of the channels that are no longer around today, still some of the channels in the uh, old school 9-11 uh, media that you could watch in those days. And so I started really watching the broadcasts, uh, the interviews, the uh, film productions, whatever was out there. And I learned about things like loose change, which I had missed at the time. Um, and it was, uh, it was starting to add up for me. I didn't have a tremendous amount of opinion about nine 11 on the day or even the years following. But over time, I reviewed a lot of information. And ever since, I have spent probably half of my time acquiring information and easily half, maybe even more than half of my time, removing information, throwing out red herrings. <clears throat> What I've come to understand is that there's a lot of uh, junk in the infosphere, a lot of stuff that you can't really do anything with. But it's what I say to people today is there's some things that I don't think they quite go away. There's some things that you can't remove because it seems like they're facts. And it's those things that I try to work with today. And so, Adam, I met you and uh, later Darren. Um, basically on Facebook in the group 9-11 Truth for Grownups, which would have been about 2017, 2018. Um, I became aware that the 9-11 Truth Movement had uh, some internal discourse <clears throat> and certain people were basically getting pushed out of the movement because of their conflicting or heretical opinions. And it's not just opinion because it is some things that really can be regarded as facts, but it's the uh, group think 
the popular opinion that some of these ideas were effectively heretical. And that inspired me even more to see what both sides of this equation were about and what this uh, internal strife was about. So I joined 9-11 Truth for Grownups, mm. and that's where I encountered Adam Fitzgerald and uh, DJ Thermal Detonator. Um, later, I would uh, meet Darren through uh, Nelson Martins, DJ Thermal Detonator. And ever since about that time, um, I've been trying to uh, prove anything that I thought I believed. And that involved a, a long process of uh, evaluating information and sourcing information, basically trying to link back anything that I held as a belief and really scrutinizing it, weighing it out and finding out if I still believed certain things about 9-11. That's where I am today. And I feel pretty confident about the information that I trust. And I'm trying to make it more available to anyone else who might be going through the same steps. And um, I think that if I can help any of those people who might be going through those same steps to perhaps advance faster, that's what I'm about today. And I can talk more about that later, but that's in a nutshell where I come from and where I'm at. It's a long process and it's something, Darren, that you went through, but you had a different uh, experience involving yourself when you first started. So, Darren, for our audience, why 9-11 and what type of experience did you go through in, in, when you started? Well, <clears throat> I was 18 when 9-11 happened, and I was a young kid. Uh, I didn't fully understand why we were being attacked um, on that day, um, but I knew I was... Uh, I was scared. I was angry. Uh, why this happened? Why all these innocent people had to die? Um, so I, I kind of through that time went through school and college and, um, you know, just everyday life. Never thought about it. <clears throat> I was always under the impression about the official story. I believed it. Um, I'm not saying the official story is 100% accurate, but most of it is. But, um, you know, I, I believe the whole official story. Um, I, you know, and I never got into conspiracies really until like 2016 is when my, my brother introduced me, my brother's conspiracy theorist. And he, um, showed me a video about 9-11 and it's the famous, I think his name is that Mark Walsh, the Harley guy. Yes, that's right. That's his name. Yeah. Yeah. He was talking about, you know, the structure of the twin towers, but, but that wasn't it. There was a guy kind of like in a suit just hanging around him and like almost like seeing what he was trying to say make sure he was saying the correct stuff to make sure the official story went through and he's like look at that look at that and i'm like uh it's kind of interesting but i never thought anything like you know the government would do this and, and that type of stuff right. um so i was like i'll look into it and ever so i started dabbling a little bit into it um and then i would go on youtube and type in 9-11 conspiracies and then you would see people talking about the flight 175 how it looks like it just goes right through the tower uh you know people talking about the pod underneath flight 175 and uh no planes no hijackers you can't make phone calls at that type of altitude um and so on mm. so i started thinking about it you know on like 
Eh, I don't know. I don't. I I just can't see where there was no plane. I you know, we saw the planes hit. You know, uh, we saw the destruction. I, I don't know. Um, so I started digging and I love a little bit more, and I came across a guy named Christopher Bolin, and Christopher Bolin was probably the number one guy I followed. Um, got his books, read them thoroughly, read them a couple times actually, and I said this guy makes like this is crazy and i started going back on stuff that israelis and previous wars like the uh you know 1967 the uss liberty um just went back to just other stuff with the king david hotel and levon you know the avon affair um and all this other stuff i'm like oh that's interesting you know it, it seems like they always want us to go to war for them and fight their battles so i was like that's interesting you know and then I came across a film on YouTube by DJ Throne Detonator about the 1993 World Trade Center bomb, mm. and which I still consider the best film available, um, even though it's about 93. But it's the best 9/11 film that you can you can go by. I I, I stand by that 100%. It's one of the best films ever. I've seen it probably seven eight times. <laughs> mm. um, and there was, he pointed out, like, Israeli involvement in 93. So as I'm reading Bolin, and I'm learning about 93, because I'd never heard about 93. I was 11 years old. I don't I don't remember anything about it, uh, to be honest with you, until I saw the film. And they're talking about, you know, Josie Hadass, Ahmed Najaj, and so on. So I'm like, wow. So if they were involved in 93, they had to do 9-11, right? So I would promote Bolin's ideas. I would go on you know, Facebook or Twitter um, and talk about how the Israelis did this and that. And then I came across you and I saw your book review <laughs> on Amazon about Christopher Bolin. And I was like, hey, I know this guy. This guy's on this guy's on YouTube and Twitter. Like I've seen him before. And I read your review and it really hit home to me because as I started thinking about it, I was like, yeah, this guy blames everyone from the janitor to housekeeper that's a Jewish person for 9-11. Like, I'm calling off like I'm anti-Semitic and I don't like this. And I was like, I need to do more digging. So I started following you and your videos. And then I started interacting a lot with you and uh, Nelson and DJ Thermodetonator on YouTube, like the comments on YouTube and Twitter. And you guys made more sense because I saw an interview that Boland did with James Perloff, where he talked about no planes being used. There were military planes and he, hijackers weren't there. It was <laughs> all this other stuff about no hijackers, no planes. And he talked about uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed being like an, an imposter at Gitmo. Like, no, this guy's crazy. I can't do this anymore. And so I actually threw away his book, um, got away from that. And I started following you and Nelson. And then Nelson invited me to a couple groups on Facebook. They're private groups, but um, I felt honored because there's only like there's only a certain amount of people in these groups. Mm -hmm. And then we started talking. He gave me all these things to do and to research and look at. And that's when I met Sean and I met some other people as well who I continue to talk to to this day. And man, it was a blessing. What a blessing because I went from a guy questioning if planes were being used <clears throat> to no hijackers to not knowing nothing about Arab terrorism, Islamic terrorism, radicalism, Wahhabism, Sunni, Shiite, 
not knowing any of that um, and now learning it mm-hmm. and how 9-11 was just precursors, how it was red flags after red flags after red flags up to the event. Because 9-11 just didn't happen in 9-11. Like we, it just didn't all of a sudden just come. Like this was planning. This was sophistication. Um, so I, uh, that's, that's, that's how I got to know you guys. And I, it's, I'm so thankful because I was able to shed that, uh, you know, that, that type of light I didn't want to be in and to, uh, become good friends with you and Nelson, Sean and, and others and, and just re, um, interacting with people on Twitter and YouTube that, you know, see what we see. It's, it's definitely a blessing. Well, sure, yeah. And, uh, thank you for the kind remarks. Um, but I, I always saw as myself as somebody who gave somebody a little bit of a push and the efforts belong with, you know, the both of you and anybody else for that matter. Um, but it, it's interesting to note that very few people make that change. And it's unfortunate because you would like to see a more active and uh, proactive educated movement that can actually get things done. And when you talk about, as you mentioned, Darren, about no planes or hijackers, and it really defeats the purpose of why you would join the truth movement to begin with, because you want to hold, if you're trying to hold a, uh, you know, a certain element of the government or the intelligence services um, uh, accountable for 9-11 itself, well, you can't do that by proposing uh, theories that don't have evidence or information that can prove that there was some type of criminality right. conducted by uh, some element of the government. Um, but, Sean, uh, going back to you, what what specifically regarding 9-11 do you find illuminating? Because uh, there's so many areas of that's related to 9-11. Was it, is it pre-intelligence operations? Is it radical fundamentalism? Or is it something else? What, what really uh, has your invested interest about 9-11? Well, there's multiple ways that we look at 9-11. I think that's only fair to evaluate it from multiple angles because it seems that there's multiple motivating factors. It's difficult to pin down just one specific thing. There's a sentiment out in the infosphere that there isn't one smoking gun regarding 9-11. I don't necessarily disagree with that. So there's a few different things to be considered. Probably the most inspiring thing that led me to spend real time and energy on 9-11 conspiracy theory and research and investigation probably the one thing because i think it was when i set out to find out is this information accurate and that's the story of urban moving systems Mm -hmm. and so once i had heard about the reports regarding urban moving systems on 9-11 i uh i made a little bit of effort actually instead of just trusting say youtube videos or online posts to tell me what to believe. I read the reports. There's police and FBI reports, which are available on, I think, archive and other places where you can, you can download these files and they're heavily redacted, but you can read them. And I read them multiple times and 
that was um that was what got me i guess researching because I, I i was blown away by the reports and and the story and i i thought it was just so interesting and uh, really out out there i was i was shocked that basically this this story caught me completely by surprise and off guard I had no idea that I would ever encounter a story like that. And I, I wanted to know, is this true? And so that was where I began researching and reading and shifting away from just watching a film mm-hmm. or just uh, reposting someone's comments or just clicking like on something that floated across my media feed. Because I, I I needed to know if that's actually something that is factual, then that's very important for the way that I would be looking at all of this and this subject matter as a whole. And um and that would have been in uh probably the the war by deception days mm-hmm. in the, the early twenty tens or or late two thousands. In a way I'm very lucky that I started to get serious about 9-11 truth or or 9-11 conspiracy theory in that era after 2008 or so, because it was only by then that the reports about Ali al-Jara in Lebanon were being cycled in the media. And so... I think I really got a leg up on 9-11 investigation because that information was known at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was able to bypass a lot of early 9-11 talk, which mostly uh, encompassed talk about how buildings fell or how planes were suspicious. And I got to skip that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I think I'm lucky in that regard. Yeah, you saved yourself a lot of time. And, you know, there's been, mm-hmm. and I don't need to tell you both, because you both came across uh, various individuals on viral media regarding uh, their lengthy uh, their lengthy experience in the fringe aspects of 9-11. Um, but, uh, Darren, you, you seem to have a vested interest with foreign Arab radicals uh, and their mm-hmm. seemingly uh connections and they're seemingly uh uh, strange connections with the intelligence services foreign and domestic uh people Mm -hmm. like el Said nocer or abu nadal and ramza youssef and you have written and helped uh a co-researcher dj thermodetonator with articles about some of them and you've done uh various videos on your channel Mm -hmm. about the brief histories of these people and I just want to to for you to explain what gave what made you take a special interest in understanding and learning about people like El Said Nocera Abu and Abu Nadal, and why are they important mm-hmm. to for the public to understand who they are? Well, uh, I have to thank DJ Thermal Detonator for that. Um, he's the one that got me to explore these uh, these type of figures like uh, El Said Nocera Abu Nadal. And- Ramsey Youssef. Um, it all stems back to 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Mm-hmm. Um, we we look at that as as our possible 9/11. Um, 
Okay, if it was done correctly, if they put the the bomb under the right column, the one, one tower was the, the whole goal was for one tower to topple the other and cause mass casualties. Unfortunately, you know, I'm great that didn't happen, but 93 definitely could have been 9/11 if it was done correctly. So we have to look at is some of the players involved in their background. Um, we know with uh, I'm not gonna go into too much depth with Abdul Dahl, but if you go back to Abdul Dahl in the 70s and 80s and, and hijackings and uh, all the other stuff he's done from bombings to assassinations um, and his involvements and, and stuff where a certain intelligence agency would kind of just step aside and not really say anything, but let him let him do what he wanted to do with no repercussions. Um, that's that's something that's very important. Elside Nosir is one of the, the guys I think gets overlooked the most because I think uh, the blind sheik Omar, De, Omar Abdul Rahman kind of gets more of the play than he does um, because of his notoriety and who he is being the blind sheik and his popularity. Um, no, Sierra, you got to think about it, came in into the States in 81. I think that's very important. And where he came from, uh, he came from not Al-Qaeda camps where he trained at right. um, to 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 learn stuff like, you know, assassinations and bomb making and all that stuff. That's very important to know. As I point out in John Miller's book, The Cell, where back into the mid to later 80s, how he was committing terrorist acts. And this is before, you know, any type of Islamic terrorism is on American soil. Uh, this is before the blind sheik even comes in years before. This is before, you know, a lot of stuff. So with Nosir and um, trying to throw a bomb at Mikhail Gorbachev and trying to, you know, he tried to bomb a, a gay nightclub there in, in New York. These uh-huh. type of terrorist acts are, are very, very important to know because as he has this group involved of the, the conspirators in 1993, um, all, all the guys involved is they they got together and went to a shooting range in Calverton, uh, Long Island there, and uh, the FBI was monitoring them. Why was the FBI monitoring them in '89 before the blind sheet came in? And there's no Islamic terrorism on the so- on American soil. So what I think is happening is they know what No Sears doing, okay, and they know his background, and this is why they're monitoring him. Um, and we know about Nosir who committed, you know, one of the first terrorist acts in American soil by assassinating uh, Maya R- Rabbi Kahani. And that's very important to know, too, because uh, his background, you know, he was uh, he formed a Jewish Defense League. Um, he was a very prominent person around the world. And for him to to assassinate him was, you know, wasn't really Al Qaeda, um, as you know, as, as we know. So. No, Sear is very important to the fact that when he got arrested, that he was still making decisions while in prison. He would have people visit him. He's talking about, hey, we need to kidnap uh, some of these Jewish judges and senators who were involved in my case. I think Elvin Schlesinger was one. Um, I, I know uh, Al D'Amato was one, Senator of New York. These guys were targeted for assassinations uh, and kidnappings. Um he wanted to bomb 12 Jewish neighborhoods, okay, and, and bust them out of prison. And so this guy, even though he's in prison, Adam, he's still, he's still like this main character. This guy giving orders out. Like they, they, they look to him for advice. They look to him for guidance. And I find that so important to know. 
so that's why I took a liking to Nocera because I think he's a very prominent figure, especially where he came from and and uh, the training he did. Mm. And the same thing with uh, with Ramsey Youssef, you know, um, how he came into the country, uh, came with a fake Iraqi passport, um, decided to uh, form this group, the Sal, and uh, you know they create a bomb and they use that to bomb the World Trade Center in 1993. Um, but his background is interesting too, <clears throat> because who his uncle is, and as a <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Khalishik Muhammad, who is his uncle, as we know, is uh, who's been deemed the mastermind of uh, of nine eleven. So, and then uh, eventually too, what we can get to it is how they formed the the Bajinka plot, which in our cases that we believe was the blueprint for nine eleven. So, um, these are some very interesting characters, um, people that. Really, the public just knows Osama bin Laden. Really, they really don't know these characters, their backgrounds, and you know why they did it. Because that's very important. Because we're told by the media that they hate our freedoms, and that's not the case. If, if you listen to Ramsey Yusuf's uh, Ramsey Yusuf's case there when he got arrested, um, it was about foreign policy. You know, our support for is- for Israel and the crimes they commit, the crimes that the United States have committed. And how he called us butchers and hypocrites, and I think he went on for like almost an hour in his uh in his in, in um his statement. So, um, that's a that's the thing. It wasn't about our freedoms. It was about our foreign policy, and that's something that as a nine eleven researcher and people who want to research nine eleven really need to look at is our foreign policy and how it affects our freedom here and our safety. Um you know, against terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and, you know, PFLP and all these other ones that that deemed us a uh, supporter of Israel when they're committing all those crimes over there in the Middle East. Yes, um, Sean, it, you know, Darren brings up an interesting point regarding the greater geopolitical goals of certain terrorist events. And you've touched on this subject before um, regarding a change in the enemy uh, as, as the United States perceives it, and when we had the when we were involved with the epic of the Cold War, for example, with the Soviet Union, uh, we had, of course, the invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, and at right around that same time, um, almost conveniently, you had a revolution of Islamists uh, to take over the Grand Mosque seizure in Saudi Arabia. And also uh, the Iranian revolution that kicked out uh, the previous Western-backed leader, Reza Pahlavi, known as the Shah of Iran. So much is going on. But in the process, it finally eliminates the worldview of Arab nationalism, something that I've covered uh, before in my writings when I posted to Medium. And, Sean, I know you you, uh, touched on the subject because... What we had was a replacement of an of an old enemy with a new in in terms of radical Arab fundamentalism, and I just wanted to get your uh, thoughts on uh, just how important this period was of 1979 forward, and why uh, should people look into this period and uh, make a connection to 9/11? Uh, what would be your th- your thoughts on that? Well, you're correct, Adam. That. 1979 is a very important and pivotal year. There is uh, a lot of reasons that I know you agree that it's a good enough place to start if you want to backtrack 
a little bit mm. with something like 9-11 and evaluate the events prior, which could have accumulated to result in the events of September 11th. Um, regarding Arab nationalism, the <clears throat> Western imperial powers in the Cold War era were terrified of figures like Gamal Abdel Nasser mm. in Egypt, who could have been considered the most unifying force in the Middle East and North Africa since some say Muhammad Ali and Nasser mortified the Western powers like the British, the French, the Americans, the Israelis. And this Arab nationalist movement, which was uh, growing out of places in the Middle East, like Egypt, like Syria, um, movements like uh, Baathism and, and other uh, pan-Arabism, compared to what we know today, which is predominantly the uh, religious uh, motivating factor. But the uh, Arab political movements at the time would have unified the Middle East and maybe even Africa for uh, political and uh, economic um, advantage to the people of those regions. And it appears in hindsight that the Western imperial powers did not like that in the slightest. And so for you to allude to the Cold War era, mm. which is a series of podcasts on its own, but in short, it does appear in retrospect that the red threat of communism to which we have still to this day an echo of the policy of containment, it appears that the red threat became the green menace, green being the color of the prophet mm. Muhammad, became the green menace in or about that year 1979. And there is a direct overlap with the policy of containment and the shifting of uh, Western uh, power, uh, military and political, against the communist expansion towards directing um, military policy and, for lack of a better term, Western aggression against Islamism, which in its own right overtook Arab nationalism because of various revolutions. And all of this ties directly in with the movements, ideologies, and figures involved with everything in Egypt from the assassination of Sadat forward into even uh, the Middle East proper, into Afghanistan, later into Sudan and Africa, and the Arabian Peninsula, and groups such as Al-Qaeda, and events such as September 11th. So it's not an easy question to answer quickly, but I would agree with you, Adam, that it is something to uh, consider and uh, and weigh out fairly and thoroughly. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, it, you know, I, I'm always somebody uh, who believes that for every event in history, um, in order to go forwards, we have to go backwards and to get a better understanding of what uh, each event, uh, how this genesis formed. And Darren, I, I'm, I'm going to go back to you because you brought up uh, an incident <clears throat> that is really um, the, the precipice for future events. And it really gets no press. And only because it involved the, the death. It was an assassination of Rabbi Meir Kahana, the founder of the Jewish Defense League. Um, almost overnight, we get an, an, an interesting conundrum. The police basically say it's the work of a lone, a lone nut job. But to some within the uh, law enforcement industry, very few, and one fireman in particular, noticed that this wasn't just the act of a lone gunman. And that was when the police went to the house of El Sayed Nosser and found a slew of incriminating documents that were from a uh, a number of individuals, uh, tapes from Omar Abdel Rahman, somebody you brought up, who's a radical cleric out of Egypt, um, training manuals that were from uh, an army base in Fort Bragg, and also bomb-making manuals. All these incriminating things almost left mm -hmm. to give you a, uh, a hint at what's about to come. And so, Darren, interestingly enough, all of this shows a wider network that mm -hmm. either the police were too incompetent to understand or that it leads open to the, you know, the door of conspiracy and say, well, you know, there's a bigger network because the government wants them involved. But when we find out the players involved with, say, the event that you brought up, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, the individuals involved with that had prior training, indirect training uh, through a CI operation called Operation Cyclone, which was to give money and training, military training through the Pakistan ISI uh, mm -hmm. to defeat the Soviets in Afghanistan. So a lot of when the war was over, a lot of these people went back to their home countries. And so you have individuals like Mahmoud Abilimo or Mohammed mm -hmm. Salome, uh, Ali Mohammed, who's going to have a big uh, role in the early formation of these terror cells. And all of this is basically an after effect of the CIA's operation, whether you want to say it was manufactured or not. But we're, we are seeing a bigger network of terrorist groups that are either uh, known to the intelligence agencies, foreign and domestic, or they really were incompetent. Is it a mixture of both or is it really due to malfeasance or intentionality? What would be your thoughts on that, Darren? Uh, wow, that's a good question. Um, I think it's a combination of both. I, I, I don't. My belief is I don't blame the government a hundred percent for the mm. events of ninety three or nine eleven. Ninety three and nine eleven are are connected in a very similar way because it's almost like the same players were involved. Okay, the problem I had with the agencies is I, I felt like, and we can go back to the Bajinko plot with Rudolph. Uh, Mendoza told the FBI about Hakeem Abdul Murad's confession about hijacking all the uh, 10 or 11 airliners and crashing them into buildings like the World Trade Center, uh, the Statue of Liberty, Transamerica Building, Sears Tower, CIA, FBI headquarters, and even some nuclear power plants and so on. 
Um, it, even the FAA even knew about this in 95, as well as the FBI. It didn't seem like anything was really done to heighten security. Because if you look at DJ Thermal Detonator's films, Pachinko Maximum, they go to these airports and the security is horrendous. Mm-hmm. People just walking through had knives and stuff in their bags. Um, the security there was bad. They got fined thousands of dollars. Um, it, it, it wasn't should how it, how it should have been knowing what well, the information we got from Mendoza in 95 about the Pachinko plot. Okay, because if you look at his film, you see there's weapons on board from planes that didn't go off. If, um, because remember the Jinka plots, 48 hours of terror. So when they came back in 913, they they searched planes, they found weapons on board. Like these guys were going to go and do another wave of attacks. Right. Okay. And that stems from the security because a lot of these guys had ramp passes. These guys had access to, uh, you know, the tarmac. They were in places where they weren't supposed to be. And if you look at um, Ahmed Rassam, was the money plot bomber he told um investigators that the whole goal of these terrorists like al-qaeda whoever they who they were is to get jobs at airports to get uh familiarized with the, the airport cab drivers because when you're a cab driver you're driving around you know what's going on and it just seems like they never just took that as a serious um as serious as they should and that's my opinion uh, because 9-11 easily could have been prevented. It, uh, shoot, even the NSA could have stopped it. They had so much metadata, they probably could have stopped it. No, that's a <laughs> that's another discussion for another day, because uh, we can spend hours on the NSA uh, alone. Um, but just not taking those red flags and, and just really um, taking them to heart, I, I guess what you have to say, because if you go back, and we can go back to Alex Station, everyone knows most of 9-11 researchers know about Alex Station. And now you had the CIA there. Um, you had uh, you know, Tom Wilshire, uh, you know, Kofa Black was part, Richard Blee, George Tennant. All these guys were, uh, Michael, it was Michael Shore's station for the Obama unit. I'm sorry, Obama, Osama bin Laden's unit. Um, but eventually he got, you know, taken off the off the case there and was sent to the basement. But um, these guys there knew about known Al-Qaeda operatives coming into the United States in January of uh, 2000. Okay. And for them not to share that information um, with the FBI um, was it's, I guess we can say it's malfeasance or some people say, well, they let it happen on purpose. I'm not on that side of letting it happen on purpose. 9-11. Um, I, I feel like they were either trying and I know me and Adam, we talked about this with flipping them or using them as agents. Kofa Black talked about that. Um, he was mad that they didn't have anybody inside Al Qaeda to for that. Um, or they just it was a turf war. The CIA and FBI didn't get along. They were fighting over this um, information. Um, they basically said, "Well, if we tell John o- John O'Neill and the I forty nine group there, just go there and like a bunch of cowboys and arrest them, and that blows everything that we've." You know we've uncovered here, so I think the CIA was holding back. They want to see where this would lead. Just unfortunately, um, it it led to nine eleven, and it definitely could have helped the cause of Nawaf Mahazmin, uh, Khalid Eldamar being in in this in San Diego. Um, it definitely they would have arrested them or 
caught them. It definitely probably would have thwarted something of the plot. Um, but with intelligence failures and 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 all this, there were so many red flags that it could have been stopped. Because now we can go back to Ken Williams and the Phoenix Memo, where they were doing aeronautical training out there in, in uh, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. We can go back to Harry Samet with uh, Zacharias Masawi from Oklahoma to Minnesota and how they just couldn't get a simple FISA warrant to search his, his laptop. Um, there were so many opportunities to stop something of the plot or, or definitely stop it altogether. And I'm under the impression where I, I don't think our government wanted it to happen. Mm. I honestly, I, I, I think, I think they were just beat. And I, I mean by that is, you know, a lot of people say, oh, they can't beat our defense systems and all this and that. These guys are not dumb. Uh, these are pretty smart individuals that, you know, United States was dealing with. And, you know, I, I just don't see that happening where we allowed it to happen so we can go into war in Iraq and invade all this, you know, uh, all these countries. Um, I think they knew something was going to happen. They just didn't have time to stop it towards the end. Um just because they didn't share that intelligence. And I just, I honestly think too, is they think that we're the United States. They ain't going to, these guys over there in Afghanistan ain't going to be able to pull this off. And um, sure enough, they did. So um, that's, that's my feeling on the intelligence failures. Um, I could go on more and more, but um, I definitely think that the United States was just, was just beat that day. Sure. And you know, it, it does bring up an interesting uh, conundrum, Sean, right? Um, if we let let's go down that road, you know, uh, because the the I think what what a lot of people miss is that with events like 9-11 or the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, um, the intelligence services that are involved with the pre collection of intelligence regarding certain players within those events, it leads back to the ultimate uh, entity, and that is the. Uh, the federal government and the governments of other countries. And when we're talking about that, we're talking about foreign policy, the bigger picture involved. Um, and so would it be ridiculous, Sean, to entertain the fact that maybe uh, the intelligence services could know about a certain event before it happens and then make sure that the event takes place in order to capitulize and take advantage of that in order to fulfill certain guidelines. Now, what I'm proposing is something that's not really that outside of the fringe mindsets, if you will. Um, because when you look at, say, 9-11, right, and you look at the wish for the neoconservative uh, think tanks and, and groups like Office of Special Plans, for example, that wrote out these directives many years prior, even before the night three world chase of the bombing, where they wanted to invade Iraq. I mean, Iraq was blamed for 19th World Street. You both know this. And mm -hmm. Iraq was blamed for uh, initially the 1980s Africa bombings and, of course, 9-11. So, Sean, my question is this. Would it be outside the realms of ridiculousness to imply that the intelligence services got information before the event happens, like 9-11, in order for these events to take place so that they could take advantage of this to fulfill these foreign policy guidelines I talk about. Would that, what would, would be your thoughts on that, Sean? Well, it's a, it's a very old question in 9-11 truth discussion. 
um, it's maybe the first question. And there are generally two camps. And I don't believe that even today, we as a 9-11 truth movement, Mm -hmm. if we can call it that, I don't believe that we've settled on an agreement an agreeance with this old question and it's not an easy question to tackle my thoughts are that generally what you're talking about is let it happen on purpose or made it happen on purpose and we still aren't sure i think it's probably a stronger argument if you had to pick one of the two probably a stronger case that this was let it happen on purpose. I think that it's probably not as clean cut as that, to be honest, and to be fair to everyone. I, the purposeful part of it is maybe incomplete or misleading. I would probably side with kind of a third party option on this and Maybe it's a cop-out, but I think instead of LIHOP, instead of MyHOP, mm. it's IHOP. <laughs> I think it happened on purpose, but I think that the contributing factors are a bit more complex, and just as you alluded to, histories such as uh, Arab nationalism and Islamism, I think that there's some contributing factors which run deep and are... Uh, very lengthy topics to cover uh, sufficiently. I think that to answer your question directly, it's not so ridiculous to propose the argument, propose the case that there are mm, American uh, intelligence offices or political offices that would be, sees a opportunity of crisis based basically the 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 crisis capitalists in the west that would certainly regardless of whether we're talking about 911 or any other subject matter would seize an opportunity naturally to enact their policy goals you mentioned the office of special plans a subject all on its own there Definitely are some threads and some currents, which again run deep regarding all of this. But the early 9-11 truth discussion predominantly revolved around a made it happen on purpose uh, type of argument. And I think that's the weaker of those two. Hmm. If you have only two options, I think that's the weaker of the two. And that is because there appears to be a lot of loose ends. Never mind the loose change, there's a lot of loose ends that are not clean. And it makes it look mm-hmm. that if 9-11 is some kind of operation, besides the official story being an Al-Qaeda operation, if it's some kind of operation where there are other operatives who have their own motivations and their own uh, interests, if it is some kind of operation well, it doesn't look super clean. Looks like it's problematic, just like a 1993 World Trade attack. It's not perfect. Mm -hmm. It's not round on all its edges. And that's why I think 
if you had to pick one of the two, probably what it looks like most is there was a lie hop or let it happen on purpose situation. But to reiterate, the on purpose part gets very tricky. It's very tricky to keep that, the P in that acronym. It's very tricky to keep that on purpose part in there. But I would probably vote for the third party candidate and I would say IHOP. It happened on purpose. And I'm not talking about pancake theories. Right. You know, Adam, I just want to add something real quick. Sure. what Sean said, I, I, you know, I, I agree with basically what he's saying too. I, I, I want to point out the fact too is that is they probably so we had so you got to think about all of the foreign intelligence involved. You got Israeli Mossad, you got Saudi involvement, um, Pakistani involvement, um, and so on. Is is that they probably knew of this plot because they're following these guys around. Okay, from the West Coast to the East Coast, and they might be reporting back to the to the CIA or, or whoever. And I think also too, we can look at is there could be some type of double crossing involved. Um, just because we know what George Tennant said about the Israelis, um, I think Bob Woodward had a book about that. Is they might have been feeding them information like, hey, this is what they're going to be doing, and maybe could have misled them, could have said, hey, this or that, and then it happened. And they knew about it, like, like foreign intelligence knew about it, and just failed to relay exactly what was going, what day it could have been on, or when exactly when they were going to do it. I just want to point that out too. I think there's possibility of double crossing involved mm. with these foreign intelligence and with the CIA, FBI, whoever you want to, you know, throw some blame on um, as well. Um, so yeah, I it, but. What I brought back too is when you have all these red flags I brought up with the Phoenix memo, Masawi, um, you had the Jinka plot. It, it 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 can take you down that road where you think yeah the government did it, they're hundred percent behind it because they had all these warnings and failed to to recognize them and failed to to protect the the, the American public on that day. Um, I'm just in a belief where I think there was some double crossing involved. And these foreign intelligence agencies knew what was going to happen, and the United States, I, I felt like, was was double crossed that in that type of type of scenario. Right. No, that's a reasonable scenario. And Darren, by the way, I just want to go back to just for a quick second. Uh, you talked about an incident with George Tenet. Uh, what were you referring to, so that the audience can know? Uh, I think Sean might know more than me, but I think it's when he was doing some little bit of drinking, and he was. Uh, I think it was that poolside. Is that right, Sean? He was in a pool. Yeah, it it has to do with an event regarding uh, Tenet was hanging out with uh, Prince Bandar. Prince Bandar, yeah, was drinking. Um, You know, naturally, the Americans and the Saudis are very friendly. And so basically, Mm -hmm. it it has to do with with Tenet's uh, uh, sort of opinions regarding the whole fallout with the post 9-11 era, the Iraq invasion, with all the all the bad intelligence that was acted upon egregiously. And uh, the story goes that Tenet had basically finished a bottle of scotch to himself at the pool and was ranting and raving about how the Jews double-crossed him that night. So that's the story about Tenet at Bandar's pool. 
And Sean, I mean, Darren, not to forget about you, because you brought up a, a subject that I have a very strong personal interest in, something that goes back um, a couple of years now. And it basically is the genesis or the birth, if you will, for the for the planes operation known as 9-11. And that's the Bajinka bombing plot. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, very few people in the 9-11 spectrum uh, know about this event because, you know, when you talk about fringe truthers, and this doesn't make up the percentage or the overall percentage of the actual truth movement, but for the fringe movement, they always refer to 9-11 as, um, uh, uh, as the afterbirth of Operation Northwoods. And I can understand why they make this distinction, but there's a lot of problems with this. When you when you look at Bajinka plot and you see it from its whole genesis, including the hidden compartments, um, it now makes sense that the 9-11 operation was basically from this Bajinka plot. So that Darren, I, I you know, this is a subject I really like. I, I, some, I, I that's how I met DJ Dumber Detonator too, because we talked about Bajinka plot and he was talking about it. And um I was blown away by somebody else other than myself that, you know, could talk about this subject and any lengthy period. So Dar Darren, what is the Pajika plot and how is it so important in regards to explaining that being the genesis of 9-11? Yeah, the Pajika plot, if there's something, uh, if you're starting to research 9-11, this, this is, uh, if you're going to research something, research this along with the 1993 World Chaser bombing, because again, it's the same same type of people involved. Um, Ramsey Youssef, uh, did his bombing there in 1983, February, and then he went to travel to Pakistan. Um, and, and that's, that's the blueprint of 9-11. Okay. And it's formed by, like I said, the same players, Ramsey Youssef, um, his, uh, I think it was his high school friend, Akeem Abdul Murad. Yes. Um, you have his other guys involved. You have uh, Wally Khan, Amin Shaw. You even have KSM involved. He's there. Um, and then you have some other people on the side, like his uh, uh, Muhammad uh, Khalifa, who is um, Osama bin Laden's uh, brother-in-law, who helped with the financing. So what's important to know about <clears throat> the Bajinka plot is it's set in the Philippines. And um, Rams Youssef um, comes there. He helps train a... A terrorist group there, um, Abu Sayyaf. Um, it's a militant group there, mm -hmm. and um, helps train them in some bomb making, uh, uh, terrorist stuff. Um, I even, I think you might agree too that some of the Abu Sayyaf members were involved with the Bajinka plot with helping plant. Uh, their whole goal was to plant bombs on planes, and I mm -hmm. think uh, some members of the Abu Sayyaf were involved in that. Um, so basically, this this Bajinka plot comes in different phases. You had the first phase was to actually assassinate Bill Clinton. Right. And, but they figured that was going to be too tough. So they went um, to assassinate the Pope. So that was one phase of the plan. Um, the second phase was to go on all these different uh, airliners. I believe there was 11 of them and set up a, <clears throat> they have a Timex watch, set these bombs up, put it underneath the, underneath the seats there on the plane uh, by uh and by the fuel tanker there. Right. And they, yep. And then they, uh, I think there was 11 of them. And then they were, what they were going to do is have them blow up 
I can't remember it, how many minutes apart they were going to each plane going to blow up. I don't know. They had it timed out. There was one one minute from each other. Was it one minute from each other? Yeah, one minute from each other. So, and the whole and the whole goal of that was to kill four thousand people. Was was uh, the casualty? So think about nine eleven was three thousand, and this was going to be close to four thousand. And then the third aspect of the plot was to hijack a, I think it was a Cessna airplane by Hakeem Abdul Murad. He was become a martyr, and he was going to crash that Cessna plane at the CIA headquarters. So, Darren, just just to piggyback off of that, it's also implied that there would have been even more attacks on airliners, even in the United States, besides Mm -hmm. just Murad, who admitted to his to admitted to his part in it. But it's implied that there were other cells of operatives who would have attacked airliners, even in the United States. So it. A uh, you know a casualty count in the thousands is absolutely is absolutely where you would be with it. But I wanted to add a, a tiny point about that was that when they were going to assassinate Pope John Paul II in the Philippines that year in January, when the Pope visited the Philippines, at the time it was the largest public mass attendance oh. of something like five million people were there in the Philippines to see the Pope and he was riding around in a Pope mobile and all that. Right. So if these terrorists were going to kill the Pope at that a gathering, I would say that it's yeah. not outside the realm of possibility that they could have killed many other people there Absolutely. as well because there were so many in close attendance. Absolutely. And then when they searched uh, the apartment there at room 603, I think it's the is it the Doa jo- Josefa apartment? I, I, I forget That's which right. one That's it right. is. Yeah, apartments there. Uh, they found robes inside the apartment building, and uh, so they can have somebody as a martyr dress up like they're part of the the clergy or something like that to go up to the Pope. They have like a robe like the Pope wears, and then they had like um, actual like parts where he was traveling maps to, to do it. So. When they searched his, which I'll get here in a second, they searched his lab uh, or his apartment. They found that as part of the pulp plot. So I thought that was I thought that was interesting. So um, and then just going back to one of the Jinka, um, you know, they found uh, what happens. Uh, Marad and Yusuf were mixing chemicals, and of course they had a big fire. Uh, Marad and Yusuf around the building, uh, the apartments, and then uh, Yusuf asked Marad to go back in to retrieve the laptop because all the all the information they had on there. So went back in there and that's how Murad got, a, he got arrested. And I, that's the key to this because um, Murad got arrested and that's when he got interrogated by um, the Philippines there with the uh, Rudolph Mendoza. And um, they, 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 they beat the crap out of this guy. Uh, they broke his ribs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said he could, they told him, man, he can take a beating. He wouldn't, you know, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't talk until they actually said this. I thought this was interesting until they said they're going to hand him over to the Israelis. Right. And that's when he, uh, that's when he was singing like a bird. So, um, I know Mendoza, Mendoza also offered him, I think it was a Big Mac from McDonald's because he was so hungry, yeah. uh, um, as well. So got to talking. And then as Murad was talking, and I think Moshan brought up, he was talking about there's other operatives of people who are taking, uh, flight training in the United States that are good to go right now to to uh do some of these uh terrorist uh, acts and another another crazy thing too with Murad is he trained in the United States to be a pilot. Yes, that's right. 
he trained in Texas, he trained in North Carolina, and he trained in at New York, New Jersey area as well. So um, he got his and pilot's license in Oklahoma, yeah, which is another hotbed for for training and terrorist activities. So, um, but then uh, Mendoza, that's how he got to know the other part of the plot of the Bojinka, which was to hijack eleven airliners and crash them into, mm. uh, like I said, like I said before, the World Trade Center, Sears Tower. Uh, CIA, FBI headquarters, um, and other uh, places of of uh, meeting. So, yeah. So, just think uh, if that plot would have went through, um, the casualties that could have happened, and just the fear of uh, of Americans. Imagine, you imagine what happened with flying. Nobody would have been flying there for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it would paralyze the industry itself, and that was another reason why Kali Chick Bobby Ramsey used to wanted to create this uh, uh, tension of fear and paralyze the American populace in order to hurt the economy as well. Um, 96 is a key year, Sean. Uh, We see the intelligence community build uh, two organizations. One was the Bin Laden Issue Station by the CIA under uh, CTC manager David Cohn. And, of course, the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, which was a, a bigger covert operation, uh, called Able Danger, um, in which I've interviewed two people involved with that operation. So 96 seems to be a key year because intelligence comes in about this mysterious Saudi named Osama bin Laden. The FBI really doesn't know who he is. NSA, CIA, who are monitoring his satellite phone, uh, have a gist about what this guy's all about. God knows what the CIA has on him in the years he's in the Sudan and maybe even into Afghanistan, if we go back that far. But we're starting to hear about this radical fundamentalist unit that uh, grew out of a training camp in Afghanistan, and it's called Al-Qaeda. However, at the same time, um, the FBI were generally ignorant regarding this subject because of their insistence that there was a lone uh, cell in Brooklyn that didn't have extensive... Uh, tentacles leaching into Afghanistan. And like I said before, uh, the fireman that was involved, Ronald Booker, uh, uh, counterterrorism agent Frank uh, Pellegrino, few people got to just say, wait a minute here, there's a bigger operation at play. And maybe this guy Bin Laden is not just some, uh, you know, lone millionaire who's funding these operations. He might be behind the creation of such operations. But the problem is, is not everybody's on the same page, Sean. The CIA, the NSA, the FBI, when they created that Bin Laden issue station that involved all these agencies under the direction of the CIA, weren't forthcoming about all their information. So, you know, like like I said before, when I interviewed uh, Anthony Schaefer, for example, of Able Danger, he once told me that he said, naively, I believed that everybody was trying to protect America was sharing information as they got it. But Sean, that wasn't the case. So can you just uh, elaborate for me about what you think is the problem between the agencies themselves regarding not sharing information? Because this could lead open the door to, like I said before, about conspiracy saying, oh, they wanted this to happen, or maybe they did. Or maybe they just didn't like the agencies, or maybe there was something more going on. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, that's a big question. Um, clearly, there are a few factors at play. There's definitely something going on. I wouldn't pin it down to just one thing. But th this might be sort of a as an instance where you could, with a grain of salt, and I think you need to keep your salt shaker handy on all of this, but with a grain of salt, you could maybe look to uh, what the official story purports about 9-11 in that there was a communication breakdown. Exactly the nature of that communication breakdown, you could probably have some debate about. Mm -hmm. But what we can basically prove is that the American security services were not working in effective conjunction. Exactly proving who did what and why gets a little trickier. And I think that's where we have to look at sort of the histories of the agencies. And a lot of it has to do with um, culture, for lack of a better word, sort of the uh, the office culture of these uh, services. There's really so much to discuss about how all of that factors in. This is sort of a component of the LIHOP versus MIHOP uh, debate. Um, for me personally, uh, I kind of cut to the chase and um, I'll direct somebody to a 30-second clip of Michael Scheuer explaining how much he didn't like John O'Neill of the FBI. <laughs> when, when asked his thoughts on special agent John O'Neill of the FBI, Michael Scheuer had nothing nice to say about the man. And Scheuer was, of course, head of the bin Laden station at one point before being pushed out because he was difficult to work with. And I don't doubt that. But for Scheuer to very publicly and very calmly watch the expression in his face when he says it, for him to make an announcement of his own accord, because he adds it as an addendum after answering some questions about his thoughts. He says something to the effect of the only good thing that happened 11 September was that the building fell on him, him being John O'Neill. Mm. So I think that can illustrate very quickly, 30 seconds, that illustrates very quickly the wall. The wall is the communication breakdown that's discussed uh, by the, uh, the joint inquiries and commissions after 9-11 about how the, the services were not working congruently. There's probably a historical investigation that we could look at the culture of the offices and how they view their own uh, assignments and how they view the big picture. Maybe there was a competition sort of uh, between the offices about how who gets the credit mm -hmm. for achieving what goal. Because certainly everybody is going to want to uh, bring in the prize. And maybe maybe offices like CIA did not want to share credit with offices like FBI. Um, I, d I dare say that uh, people working at CIA may have felt um, superior or better than FBI. Maybe they think that uh, they're just better and smarter than them. And they could be worried that uh, FBI is going to tough it up 
and they don't want them to be uh, involved because they could get in the way. But because we know about the types of things that CIA and FBI, I'm not letting them off the hook entirely mm. either. The types of things that CIA has done in the past, you got to grab that salt shaker again. But specifically, your point was about the year 1996. And 96 is important because that's Clinton administration. There's an entire series of discussions about uh, the Clinton administration. And it was at that time, according to Scheuer, keep your salt shaker on hand, according to Scheuer that in 1996, the United States, and basically this is because Bill Clinton leads the nation at the time, passed up at least 10 opportunities to just get rid of bin Laden. And and that involves using um, United States military or uh, United States intelligence services. The options were on the table pretty pretty well constantly to um, take someone like an Osama bin Laden out of the picture entirely. Right. And uh, none of these opportunities were acted upon. Um, Scheuer, to his credit, uh, felt very upset about all of that. And again, according to Scheuer, the United States intelligence apparatuses, by a year like 1996, they had more information on Al-Qaeda than any terrorist group ever. And because other terrorist groups have already been brought up in this conversation, SIF, Abu Nadal, PFLP, etc., for that to be fact, that's tremendous. Mm. Mm-hmm. For Al-Qaeda to have been the group that they had the most information on of any terror group ever, I think that I think that is one of those answers to a question that really raises more questions, but that's truly what we deal with on a daily basis. So I'm not sure if that truly answers your question, Adam, but uh, those are my thoughts. No, that, uh, I thought you did a good job there, and that's a lot of lifting, as you said regarding the question being so broad. So Darren, I'm going to ask you to put in your share of heavy lifting with the next question about uh, 9-11. Now, I'm not going to bore the both of you because you're more than uh, well-read on the subject of 9-11. And um, I've already answered, I already asked these questions to previous people on the show. So let me ask a question of you, Darren, that um, you have covered. And it's something that is, uh, I think, uh, it was brought to my attention by none other than our fearless leader, DJ Thermodetonator, <laughs> Nelson Martins. And I know of only one other person in my experience that has ever covered this. And that was Paul Thompson, who I consider yeah. the leading researcher in 9-11 uh, I've mm-hmm. ever met. Um, and that is the additional hijackings that were going to happen and the extra Arab fundamentalists that mm-hmm. we don't know much about because when we detained them, when we lifted the airline ban on September 13th, 14th, uh, we deported these people because they overstayed their visas or had visa violations prior to it. And I want you to get, I want you to uh, give us some, your thoughts about um, this anomaly of 9-11. I, I made a podcast previous um, and my initial started to uh, the darkened hour and it was about united airlines flight 23 whom you both know about uh that plane that was 
going to take off September 11th and basically had three Arabs yelling about not, you know, wanting to fly because the plane went back because the CEO, Gerald Arpey of United Airlines, who's a hero in my book, basically ordered the very first stand down. But it was a stand down for United Airlines, not the airline industry. So, Darren, can you talk about the additional uh, hijackings or the additional attempted hijackings or of these Arabs? I think it was about 50 people that were arrested and detained. Uh, is that right, Darren? I'll just get your thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely around there. Um, yeah, the, <laughs> we always talk about 9-11 being the blueprint uh, for the, from the Bajinka plot. Mm. And Bajinka plot is known for 48 hours of terror. That's right. Okay. So you have 9-11 and then when 9-13, when they reopened uh, the airports there, um, yeah, they came back. Uh, there's uh, DJ Thurman there does a, a fabulous job of showing that in his films uh, from Bajinka Maximum to uh, the inside job at the Boston airport as well. Um, yeah, they, they, they came back and uh, there's uh, DJ, DJ Thermal Detonator does a good job of showing what flights were targeted. Mm. Uh, we know about Flight 23, uh, where there was three men on there who were restless and uh, getting pretty rowdy about why they're not taking off. And then when they brought the authorities on board, they, they, they were able to, you know, before they got on, they took off and they left all their stuff there. And so that's that's definitely one to, to look at. You had uh, Flight 163 was another one uh, where there was possible hijackings reported on 163. Um, flight 43 was another one mm. where it had mechanical failure. Um, what wasn't able to take off was another flight that was targeted for um, for a hijacking. Delta 1989, which gets confused a lot with Flight 93 because they were like on that same path where they inter. Uh, getting up and down on their cell phones when they weren't supposed to be. Um, so there's a lot of uh, information regarding, you know, uh, September 13th that needs needs to be heated because mm-hmm. uh, it's so important to know. Um, as they they came back, they weren't scared because they, they had operatives in these airports. Ahmed Rassam, the Millennium Bot, um, Plot Bomber, uh, said this. They had guys in the airports. They had guys, and you know, working as you know, they could. Who knows what they were working in? They could have been doing maintenance. They could have been doing janitor. Who knows? Uh, they were. They found these weapons on these planes, knives. They 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 box cut. They found all this stuff mm-hmm. on these planes um, that were being targeted. I know. I don't. I don't know if it was Flight One Sixty Three, but there was another one uh, where they had like thirty U.S. Marines on the flight, yes. and they. And I think it might be 163. I, I, I could be wrong. Um, but there was a flight with 30 U.S. Marines on there where they interviewed passengers saying there was some suspicious uh, activity going on there. And they saw the 30 Marines and they're like, I forget this. Um, so and, and DJ Thurman Denier does a good job of pointing out to us a lot of these uh, guys uh, who are going to do these hijackings. Um, other operatives didn't show up. Um, some could have chickened out. Um, so maybe just weren't able to make it. Um, you know, it, the official story says four planes. And, you know, that's why I disagree with the, with the official story. Now, the official story is not 100% wrong. It's just incomplete. 
um, because it's not giving you everything. There's a, there's there's cover up there from you know from the FBI, and you know my reasoning is too is why they covered up is because this was going to be a bigger operation, and then what people think, and if you just go back and research Pajinka and they're taking that blueprint, there definitely was, and I think by covering that up, that maybe shows you know like the American public like oh. You know, don't be so scared. No, we, we got them now. Don't want to worry about it no more. When actually, it could have been 10, 12 planes right. used that day or even more. Um, we, we don't know. Because you got to think about all the targets. Um, they wanted to do the Sears Towers, always been a target. Mark Bingham. Oh, no, I'm sorry, not Mark Bingham, but uh, I think it's Peter Hansen on Flight 175 talked about his dad that they wanted to hit Chicago. Um you know, Trans-America Building's always been a target in San Francisco. It was a target during the Millennium Plot. Um, so, and then you talk about the White House. The cap- U.S. Capitol's always been a target. KSM's always talked about the, the Capitol Building um, uh, as, as a target. Um, so you have all this stuff going on that's not being reported, but DJ, DJ Thermal Daner does a phenomenal job of accessing this, all these articles and archives he puts out and the film is free it's a long film but it's definitely uh you know worth the watch because of all the information it brings of what absolutely could have happened 9-11 not just the four planes or we could have been talking about 12 15 Just to, just to also add to that, Darren, uh, Bob Graham, who's the co-chair of the Joint House Inquiry that investigated mm-hmm. the intelligence services and the history of pre-intelligence 9-11, basically did say that they knew, he knew that there were additional hijackings that were going to take place. And this was from closed-door sessions from members of the CIA and the intelligence community as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I, I mean, I could spend another hour talking to you about the anomalies of 9-11. I won't do that. <laughs> but I, I do want to uh, end, like finalize it here around so much work. I mean, between the both of you, separately, and even when you get together. there's a, I mean, you know, we talked about this before we play, I press record. You, you're working on a number of projects there. You are. Sean, you're working on the podcast. you got other projects going on. But the both of you also have something else going on. You have daily lives. Now, mm-hmm. I, I want, I, I'll, I'll ask da- uh, Sean first and Darren, um, because if you're going to try and entice the public to get into 9-11 and they see the enormity of it and that they have their own family going on, they have their own daily lives, mm-hmm. um, what would you say, Sean, for example, what would you say to them? regarding um, where you would start off first or, you know, how would you go about, um, you know, getting an interest in 9-11 in a deeper dive? And also, Sean, at the same time, um, how does this affect your daily life? Do, do Does family, friends, associates, do they know what you're doing? And are they supportive of what you're doing? And just talk on that for a bit. Well, I, I try to talk to people that I encounter who um... – maybe express some concern about um, the United States economy or United States foreign policy. Um, you know, any, anyone who uh, maybe is anti-war or mm-hmm. uh, anti-corruption, 
um, folks who have any number of concerns about uh, the United States government. We're all Americans here, and so that's the government that uh, we have inherited. And if folks uh, have uh, questions about um, something that happens uh, overseas, uh, it, it could be anything in current events. Uh, you know, right now everyone's talking about Russia. There's there's plenty of opportunity to get into a discussion about the United States policy and and foreign affairs by large. And I'm always happy to talk to people, especially uh, if I encounter them day to day. Um, yeah, uh, we all are humans and we have lives and we have to do what it takes to survive. And so I try to balance things and, and be able to move forward in my daily life and also make some time to outreach to people for anyone who wants to listen or, or have a discussion. Um, if someone says, hey, I saw this great thing, loose change, and did you know a third building fell? And then at that point, I'll tell them, okay, that's uh, it's very interesting. Did you know about the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and how the mastermind of that attack uh, formulated a plan that looks remarkably like 9-11 in a couple of years later called Bojinka and, and talk about uh, the expanding nature of, of all of these uh, intertwining uh, topics. Um, if, if someone has a, a question or a comment about uh, maybe the Twin Towers or the, the, there's there's any number of these um, pretext terrorism topics. Uh, there are many that uh, I'm always happy to get into with people and and sh have a conversation and a discourse and share ideas. Uh, there's so many topics to cover that really, depending on the day and depending on the person who I encounter, I'll choose different topics to share with people. Um, it was just recently that I had a great conversation with someone about uh, uh, basically their interests in 9-11 in conspiracy theories and, mm. and how uh, Building 7 was a, a mysterious anomaly to them. And I told them about urban moving systems, which they'd never heard of. And, uh, you know, their eyes were wide like dish plates. Mm. It was very good. I'm always happy to have these discussions with folks. Um, it's, it's an expanding topic, which Adam, you've said many, many times on your channel, uh, there's, there's a branching out effect, but, uh, but we're able to bring it back, uh, to, to some, some major, uh, keystones on, on all of this. Um, and, and I think, uh, culture is a, a huge component about it, about, uh, how we as Americans, uh, see ourselves in the world and how we view our actions and how the rest of the world uh, from the other side views uh, what Americans do. And, uh, and so 9-11 was very shocking for Americans and the world, but uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me if there were people, not just spooks in the intelligence services that thought something like that could and would happen. Mm. And so uh, uh, it's it's not just a, a, a problem of uh, criminality 
for criminal action, but I think there's, uh, there's a very large, uh, overreaching and, and, and encompassing, uh, cultural issue, which we are trying to, uh, work with and, uh, bring to light and, uh, and maybe, uh, improve. And so, uh, I'm always happy to have these types of conversations. I don't always have the answer to the question, but I think it's very good that we're asking these questions and that we're communicating with each other. And Darren, is is that uh, a, a similar experience to you? Are, are you when when you work on these projects, um, how does it affect your daily life, and is your family supportive of what you do? Yeah, I mean, my wife doesn't; she doesn't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> she sees my. Uh, table full of books and laptop everything notes i got written down uh so you know she doesn't she doesn't care she knows i enjoy it so you know uh it's better than going out to the bar and getting drunk or something you know with friends (laughs) no but but um yeah same like sean it's it's 9-11 is is not summed up in five minutes it's it's years and years and years of research um it's so expansive um you got some so much involved from Foreign intelligence, domestic intelligence, uh, you know, air, you know, Arab terrorism, uh, why they did it, just just the players involved. There's, there's just so much stuff, and mm. don't think you're gonna master it in like a year or so. Because, I mean, you've been doing it longer than I have. And I learn stuff new every day, like you say. <laughs> yeah. So, it's very expansive. Um, I, I enjoy talking to people um, about it. Um, we got to have a certain common denominator though, because. Um, you know, you, you gotta be able to believe in planes and hijackers. It's it just, you, you gotta start there. If, if we're going to talk about 9-11 and we're still talking about there was no planes or holograms or there were fake people on the, on the plane or phone calls were fake. I, I just can't have that discussion with you. I, mm-hmm. I just don't have time for that, but we can get like in a common denominator, like uh, airplanes and hijackers. Uh, talk about the intelligence agencies. That's something we can get going. Even if you say if you think Israel did nine eleven, that that's fine. We can still talk about it um, and and go from there. Um, as we can talk about other like with with Saudi intelligence, Pakistani intelligence, uh, um, CIA. And we can talk about all those things. So. Um, I do enjoy talking to people. I really do. I I just love to get more people on board. There's uh, the truth movement's been poisoned. And it's been poisoned for years um, with all the fanatical conspiracies out there. Um, as we've mentioned before, I'm not going to name them all. Um, or the people who did it, you know, uh, who are responsible for them. But um, just just finding the truth, you know. I mean, I think we're, I think I think we all know that we're not getting the full truth from 9/11, you know. And these families deserve closure. Um, I couldn't imagine, you know, losing a, a family member that day, uh, jumping off those buildings or burning to death. Um, I just can't imagine the pain they were going through, knowing that their loved ones weren't coming home after, you know, after uh, they left for work on Tuesday morning to probably kiss them goodbye. I'll see you later for dinner. And, you know, next thing you know, Uh, finding the truth, uh, do as much research as we can, and I just feel like we do a disservice to families if we start entertaining those uh, those uh, kooky conspiracy theories out there. 
um, because um, I just put myself in their shoes. If that was my dad or my wife or my brother that died, um, I don't want to know about, oh, there was no planes. They were taken somewhere and killed off or, you know, whatever, or whatever stupid thing they're saying. So, um, yeah, 9 uh, is very important to me. Um, the stuff before 9-11 is very important to me. But even the aftermath, because 9-11 still, um, the event has still causing issues this day. Yes. You know, we're we're still over there in the Middle East. We still have, uh, it seems like we we got troops everywhere surrounding, policing the world. Um, and here in the United States, we have veterans who commit suicide 23 a day. And we got homeless people. We got food issues. It's like we've got all these issues here. Um, but yet we're, we're policing the world over in the Middle East. So um, we need to uh, scale back from that and focus on what's here. Um, and uh, that's just my opinion of it. But like I said, with 9-11, I, I, I feel like it's, uh, it's still an open case. Mm-hmm. Um, we only got a little bit from what the government told us. I think there's a lot more on um, what happened that day. And um, just continue research and trying to find the truth for it. Yeah, it's, you know, very well said. And because I'm I'm similar minded thinking, whereas uh, and I sound like a broken record at this point. Forgive me, I'm 53. So, you (laughs) you know, we have a war on two fronts and there's a war for war against disinformation and a war for information that we're trying to get from the government itself. And, you know, in between are people like yourself. And you're not because you're not a you wouldn't say you're a, a fringe conspiracy theorist. Or somebody who just straight and narrow, the government told the truth, there's no conspiracy. We're in between. And there's not many of us. It's unfortunate. And that's, I think, whether you want to say it's intentional or not, you know, they spread the disinformation and whatnot. I'm not going to call people like, uh, I'm not going to say a name, like Barbara Honiger, an agent. I think she's an an unwitting influence in poisoning the well, so to speak, which helps the government. By propositioning, like you said, Darren, no planes or no hijackers and all these other scenarios that in the end hurt the very movement that they belong to. But mm-hmm. I, I would I want to wrap it up here. And I want to get Sean, um, there's you have you've been working on a new podcast with Darren, the both of you, and I was so excited when you finally released the first episode. Um, like I said before, before I press record, you know, I've always believed in the both of you, and I really am proud of the both of you for the strides that you made, for the work that you've done, and you put in a lot of work. And I want you to come on the show and to talk about, you know, this subject that we talk about today, and also to get you the attention that you deserve, because um, what what we want in the end is to have a bigger educated movement that we can actually try to change things, as you said, Darren, um, about holding people accountable. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I do want to say on the air, I'm very proud of the both of you. You made big strides and you've um, really have gone over and beyond um, and defeated the the inner, you know, the, the previous held beliefs, because now mm-hmm. you're entering in the world of knowledge and with knowledge comes responsibility. And you took it on yourselves to make that step. And it's a bold step. And, you know, I want to thank you both very much for making that step. All right, Sean, where can people find you? And 
talk about the podcast and what direction you want to go in. And Darren, you answer the, you know, answer those questions after he's done. Well, Adam, thank you again for the kind words. Um, I am, uh, I'm on Twitter and YouTube. Uh, people can uh, find me there. I just use my real name. I don't have an interesting title for my channels, unfortunately. Uh, my Twitter handle is SKRussellAK. And um, I'm happy to, to connect with people. Um, basically, uh, I think I speak for Darren as well as myself that we've been developing our capabilities and, and trying to network with other like-minded people um, about all of this. And uh, Darren and I had the idea to uh, start collaborating on some things quite a while ago, and we've been working towards that goal to uh, make that a reality. Um, I also do uh, uh, article editing and contributing writing and research for DJ Thermal Detonator Nelson Martins of uh, Truther TV and uh, 9-11 Truth vs. Skeptics. And uh, we have some uh, projects, which I think will be very exciting uh, coming out from that. Um, I uh, try to uh, post information on my social media feeds and uh, on my channels, uh, if I ever find something that I think is pertinent or interesting, I'm always trying to share it with people and uh, basically to uh, help educate. Um, I'm always learning myself, but I think that w when we all work together in, uh, in these endeavors, uh, we, we create a, a better culture. And uh, again, I think that's really, never mind the crimes of 9-11, I think what we have is... Uh, a very deep and problematic cultural issue. And so uh, to change that culture, we have to change the media. And so that's why we're contributing to maybe tip the scales, so to speak, and balance the media so that there's better information and more of it to influence and educate and make better informed uh, public and then the public can make better informed action and decisions and uh, maybe turn the ship around. Darren? Yeah, same thing as Sean. Uh, the podcast, um, Beyond Ground Zero, I'm so happy that we're doing it. I know we talked about it for probably over a year about getting to it, um, but we finally were able to get together and and get the first episode out, which I thought was a success about the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Um, episode two should be coming out very soon. We're going to talk about the, the Jika plot. So I'm excited about that. Um, I'm mostly on Twitter. Um, it's at HarveyDarren26. Um, so that's where I usually talk about, you know, 9-11 and stuff. I do talk about sports, too. I'm a big Michigan fan, so you might see me posting some Michigan football <laughs> stuff, so... Uh, big Michigan fan. Um, yeah, and then I I got some articles on, uh, like Sean pointed out on uh, TJ Thermal Detner's blog, uh, 9/11 Skeptics vs. Truth. I got three articles there about the Millennium Plot, uh, the 1997 subway bombings in Brooklyn, mm. and um, I did a film re uh, article on his film review of 1993 World Chaser bombing. So, um, I got more projects with DJ Thermal Detner I'm working on right now. Um, I just went on his Patreon. We did a book review um, uh, about the prison system and uh, and uh, you know terrorism in there. So that was fun. 
Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to the podcast. Um, we'll be once a month. We'll get we'll get a episode out for you guys. Um, so, but that's that's the goal. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, staying busy for sure. Darren Harvey, Sean Russell, the podcast is beyond ground zero. Thank you both very much for coming on today. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. For having me.